podcast is with Chris Dennis. Currently, Chris is a strength and conditioning manager with the Geelong Cats AFL team. Chris started at the Cats in 2002 as an unpaid intern. This evolved slowly into a full-time role at Geelong in 2005. After that, he, he then worked at the Queensland Reds for a number of years with Eddie Jones, which was a wonderful experience for Chris. This progressed to stints with Leinster Rugby Union and Paris Lestard before returning to Geelong Football Club in 2012. His determination to get a start in the AFL is well documented and, and in fact humorous in this podcast. I rejected his, uh, <laughs> him a few times. It was obvious to me with his work ethic and his smarts, he would progress in this industry. In this podcast, we chat about his development, lots of stuff about the AFL, COVID-19, his experiences in rugby union, and also many other current topics in the AFL landscape, such as development of young young athletes. So let's get chatting. Good day, Chris. How are you, mate? Hello, Lawrence. Good, thank you, mate. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. I've seen in the media that the AFL season is about to kick off, and obviously there was uh, round one occurred, and 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 COVID's really impacted upon people's jobs, and and obviously now training started again. Can you give me a little bit of a, a rundown of what happened from the start and and what's happening now? Yeah, so we uh we got the first round out of the way of the AFL season. Um, geez, nearly seven weeks ago now, seven eight weeks ago, and um, once that was shut down, pretty much like everybody, it wasn't really sure when it would restart again, and. I'm sure everyone saw the media around what that looked like, but um, there's been a heap of work put into to getting it up and running again. But once that happened, it, it was pretty much more a financial situation for all the clubs in the AFL that were taking place. So for some reason, the uh, it came to a standstill in all clubs and, and everybody pretty much got stripped down, um, except for generally around five key staff within the football department area, which... There's a bit of a mandate from the AFL around what that could look like. So there was a weekly budget around what, what could be spent on staff um, and then also what that should look like. So a football manager, a head coach, player development manager, a psychologist, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, so a, a bit of a, a daunting time for a lot of people, including myself. So uh, for the first time in, in uh, 20 odd years old as a... Uh, I was stuck in the no man's land, not, not sure where everything was going, but um, here we are now. And we're, I think we're about 20 days out from our first, second game of the season now, so we've been back this week um, into training in small groups, which has been, been pretty strange. A lot of, uh, like you have in China, what you've had to deal with uh, the last few months, but a lot of regulation, small group training only, no contact, very minimal numbers in the gym, so we're allowed to have eight players in, in a gym at a time and the 1.5 metre social distancing rules, but it's testing, so COVID testing for players and staff twice a week plus daily temperature checks, pretty much a four-week run into the start of the season and see how we get back. So how many people did lose their job? Oh, it's not, not necessarily losing their jobs. It's more um, people were stood down. So I, I was stood down, so all our staff, all our strength and conditioning staff at the club were stood down until further notice uh, and then we were reinstated to, to different hours last week. So, for example, I'm only reinstated for eight hours a week 
actually being oh, okay. as you'd call it sacked. So, so, some clubs have moved, so some clubs have, uh, have started making moves and are letting people go. But I think um, I think a lot of the clubs, from what I understand, it, this is probably a little bit above my pay grade. I'm just a strength coach, so don't quote me on any of this. But hmm. from what I understand, from what I've read and what I've heard, is they're just waiting for next year's budget to be confirmed. So okay. at the moment, I yep. think they've had to trim back. They've got a weekly spend. So the AFL have pretty much taken over the books of the majority of the AFL clubs. And within that, they've told each club, this is how much you've got to spend. Choose your staff. You've only got 24 staff that can be in contact with the players. Pick your top 24 staff that have an influence on the team. So you know what a footy club looks like. We've probably got 80 football department staff. You've got to pick 24 of those that have the biggest influence on the team. Here's your budget. Work out what they're going to get paid and how many hours they're going to do, and off you go. So it's a pretty in-depth process, I think. And moving forward, from what I understand at the moment, they're just trying to work out how much money is going to be budgeted towards the salary cap. So I think at the moment we spend around $9 million on staff. Um, that's going to trim back, from what I understand, to 3 to $4 million. So Gee. I think they've got to somehow trim out 4 to $5 million in salary cap. Now, those numbers are probably totally wrong, but that, that probably gives you an understanding of what yeah. they've got to do moving forward. So, yeah. so our club hasn't made any moves moving forward. Uh, I think they're just waiting for a okay. uh, final word from the AFL. Okay. Does so, yeah, no, fantastic. Uh, actually, before we start about your journey, and whilst we're on the, the pre-season here, and obviously it's been a subject of a number of podcasts, I suppose it's interesting now the players had time off and, and the whole chestnut of speed and hamstrings and soft tissue injuries and, you know, the, 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 the stories we've heard about the USA when the NFL was stood down a couple of years ago, all the injuries. What, what, what's happening there? Is, is, it, is it a bit tricky right now with the, with the whole uh, speed acceleration, eccentric uh, injury situation? The, the way I, uh, the way we look at it at, at the football club is we, we deliver the program as best we see it. So when uh, when we got stood down, we still wrote a six week strength and conditioning program. So be it like a, a I guess a mini preseason program for all the players. One thing that that we have and it started when you were at Geelong Football Club is we have a, we have an amazing culture of strength and conditioning. Our players. Uh, believe in the program, they rate the program, they understand the program, um, and they then know why they do that program to help them become the footballer that they want to, want to be. So now that they've got that belief in uh, in what they're doing, we just put it back on them uh, through that break. So we delivered a, a really high-intensity, speed, agility, uh, running program that should meet a majority of the needs, obviously, you can't tick off all the hard change of direction that come with football and um, the anticipation of movement, uh, the hard XL, D cell as much as you would in a game. We, we, we were pretty confident that if players followed the program, uh, they'd be speed tolerant, uh, they'd be repeat speed tolerant, and their acceleration wouldn't have dropped off much because we're, we are a, a football club that runs a very uh, heavy speed acceleration strength power program because that's the team that we want to be known as a contested football team but um, we just put the, the players in charge of holding each other accountable for that program and we're really happy with how everyone came back to be honest we've, uh, 
we've run everyone in the first week. Everybody's ran uh, multiples over 90%, 95% of their max speed that they've recorded. So we've already uh, pushed their max speeds in their first week back. That's great. And yeah. more so a test. Yeah, and to be honest, that's probably a test of healthiness for us. If, if you're a good athlete and you can't get up to running above 90% of max speed, then there's probably something not quite right with the mechanism at, at the moment. So... So that that was probably what we did, mate. We just really challenged the uh, the players to. This is their opportunity to show us that they're, they're dedicated. And if they did the program, they would have been okay. And if they didn't, then they probably won't survive. But I think more of the challenge um, in that break was nobody having gym equipment. Okay. Um, yeah. Like the availability to the equipment that that we have at the club. So as much as we tried to to give out uh, as much equipment as possible, it it's just impossible to, to navigate that with 46 players mm. uh, you just don't have enough equipment so more the challenge was writing weights programs that ensured you still got enough concentric eccentric and isometric work in to ensure that tissue tolerance for when they come back and then also now this four weeks it's the, the challenge for me probably uh, with with the strength programming is just getting the balance right between a lot of guys haven't done much strength work for six weeks We've only got four weeks. It's a really football-heavy program because we need to expose them to as much football as mm. quickly as possible. Yep. How, do, how do you get balance right with the strength program? And and for me, it, it's probably more about just tissue tolerance, uh, but ensuring that they're running fast yep. as often as possible while building their tissue tolerance in the gym gradually over the next three to four weeks. Yeah, you can't you can't cram it all in, can you? Basically, you're saying at this stage, no, you know, no, you have to sort of prioritise certain things and/or change the periodisation plan or the way you structure your programs to try and get the same effect. Yeah, it's quite a challenge. Yeah, well, you know yourself, you've only got four weeks, so the first week they're only allowed to train in groups of eight. So really, all we can do is start exposing them to uh, football and um, get them kicking again in groups because they've mm-hmm. only been allowed to kick with one other person. So all of a sudden, right away, your load spiked an hour of football kicking with eight guys is a lot more kicking than what they've done in the last mm-hmm. six weeks. So it's just gradually trying to increase that load to prevent injuries. So I, I do think the team that gets the least injury in this competition now is going to thrive. Mm. Yeah, it'd be interesting. And I suppose it will, as you say, it, it, it may be as much a reflection on the player's... Uh, dedication in that six-week block as much as the program that the clubs are delivering now uh, will be, be, I suppose, difficult to ascertain But it, it, because people will just zero in on the club. It'll be interesting to see which players from which clubs did, did the training, I suppose, when, when, uh, when nobody was around. I think you started with me in uh, 2001, was it? 2002? I've forgotten now, Chris. Uh, t- 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 2002, it was... Uh... <laughs> It was the golden draft year. That I <laughs> and you were part of it. <laughs> you were the part of the SNC golden draft. That's funny. So, so, <laughs> what did you study? What was your what was your what did you study in Ballarat? I studied what uh, what people would call these days uh, exercise and sport science, but back then it was called uh, human movement. So I studied that. It's now called Fed University, so Ballarat University. Um, and funnily enough, uh, an interesting story for all you listeners out there is um, I actually went and watched the Geelong game, uh, I think 
think in 2000, 2001, at the end of 2001, and uh, I, I remember watching you warm up Geelong <laughs> uh, against St Kilda, and I got there really early. I got to see the first warm up where you took all the boys out for a mandatory jog around the square, get them going. And I thought, geez, that's a cool job. That's exactly what I want to do. And I remember I emailed you 14 times. <laughs> And you never replied <laughs> to one email. <laughs> yeah, it's just freaking pain. All I wanted was some, some field work, and in the end, I turned up to Geelong Football Club and <laughs> told the secretary there uh, that uh, I, had a, I had an appointment with Loris Bertolacci, and I remember you coming out, and I said, I'm Chris Dennis. And you went, Ah, I've got no work for you. <laughs> 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 but uh, you, you found me some, you found me some uh, work experience there. Put me in charge of Gary Ablett's uh, oh, weight, right. making sure that he did all his weights. That's pretty historical, isn't it? That's uh, pretty amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah mate. It, it, it's very funny because my first job at the football club was uh, looking after Gaza and following him around the gym. And mate, twenty years down, I'm still following Gaza around the gym, making sure he does his weight. He's you like, won't believe it. <laughs> I've still, I've still got that word. I've still got that word document. <laughs> I've still got that word document <laughs> with Gaza. <laughs> you probably remember it actually that that I did. It was uh, uh, fairly, it was fairly rudimentary to be to be honest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you uh, played basketball so, too. So much, so much has changed. You played basketball. Yeah, so I was a I was a, a basketballer as a junior, but uh, probably like most uh, strength and conditioning coaches, I was a failed athlete. The next best thing was to move towards strength and conditioning. I think I think a lot of us tend to find our way down that path when uh, when you don't quite make it. But um, you you did quite well in basketball at junior level, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I wasn't too bad. I, I represented Victoria and um, so, well, you I played in China. Actually, I went to China. Played played a bit over in China. You didn't fail. That was that <laughs> long time ago. <laughs> What's that? You didn't fail. <laughs> <laughs> no, I definitely. Definitely didn't fail, but uh, yeah. mate, I was uh, I was playing basketball in China in 1996. Gee. So it was a very different place to probably what, yeah. what it's like now. But uh, I played basketball up until I probably really started at the football club, and then I once I started uh, work experience with you for a year, I um, pretty much dedicated myself to becoming a, a, the best strength and conditioning coach I could, and moved down to Geelong, and I did another year with you for very minimal money, but you uh, talked me out of doing an honours to learn from you, which uh, I was very grateful for. And Jeff Oxley gave me a job as a Pilates instructor up the road at Bay uh, Physiotherapy and did that for a year, supplemented the income. And then the next year, a position opened up when uh, Jared, e Jared Egan moved on and off I went. So then I worked with you for a couple of years. So your progression to full time, I think you, you finished up full time in two oh five or two oh four. Forgotten now. Yeah. Uh, so I finished finished at the club in two thousand five, uh, end of two thousand five season. Yeah. And then um, I, I went up to the Queensland Reds, which I didn't really want to do, but you talked me into it, which again I'll probably be grateful for because that opened up my world to uh, the world. <laughs> Really, so well, that's right, and there, I worked. That, that's right. I, I, I remember, never forget that Eddie Jones and uh, his strength and conditioning guy came to the club for a bit of a, 
a look at the yeah, club and Sue Livingston and Eddie Eddie asked me if there's any young SNC guy and then I said you I don't really want to lose Chris but at the end of the day I knew that um, if you broadened your horizons and got a bit bit of work experience but more so you broadened your CV and uh, yeah it was an interesting uh, it, w- it was an interesting little period uh, but it was pretty obvious to me I'd, I'd been through that experience myself that you know I felt like I should have broadened my CV before that but I was a little bit stuck and yeah it was, it was, it was an obvious to me and uh, yeah fantastic so 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 what what was your initial impact of going from AFL to to rugby union the impact that it had on me or oh no but more so you know you me. you'd obviously got used to footy in that, that era AFL 2004 2005 uh, and then all of yep. a sudden you're thrust into a rugby union sport in Queensland which is quite different and you're a young guy yeah, so I think I was when I started with you at, uh, at Geelong. I was twenty, so I was twenty-four when uh, when I went to the Reds. I, I think I was really lucky because ha- having Eddie Jones at the club, um, and, and for those people that know Eddie, he's very well researched and loves getting information out of every other sport that he can. So I think I was lucky in that regard because one, he he loved AFL and the way they train, and he wanted the team to be able to run like an AFL team did. So um, I think instantly I had his respect from that regard uh, in implementing a a conditioning program with with Stu, who was the head of strength and conditioning there at the time, Um, but also just bringing in new ideas, I think. So for me, I I loved it because the rugby rugby guys were probably a little bit more designed physically around what – I wanted to work with in terms of the strength and power, big guys that can throw around some big weights. So that was uh, that was really eye-opening for me and a great experience. And also the ability to be able to contribute with the things that I've learned from you uh, in terms of particularly high-end conditioning for, for centres and wingers um, and, and the outside backs. That, that was something that I felt I, I could really contribute as well. Eddie Jones, obviously, had a spectacular success in the past couple of years. Why do you think that? I mean, you gave me a little bit of information about him, but he's, he's, he's a pretty amazing bloke, really, where he's still in it now at the highest level. It's interesting because I've worked with Eddie and Michael Checker, so probably seeing the, the best and worst of, of both, I guess, so two big international coaches that have gone off against each other. But the one thing with Eddie, I think, that makes him so amazing as a coach but also can be quite hard to work with in terms of uh, the press, the, the pressure and the stress that it can create is how meticulous he is to preparation. So with Eddie, there is never there is never a stone unturned. So he'll never never lose a game from not doing enough research into the opposition or looking at enough tape or making sure his team's prepared, uh, making sure his players are prepared, his staff are prepared. And I think that that can take a big toll on somebody, which is, I think he's changed from what I understand. Uh, talking to a few people, he's actually, his philosophy's changed a bit. Um, now, once his health sort of deteriorated a little bit there a few years ago, I think he's tried to be a bit more holistic now, but um, made just meticulous in his preparation, mm. leaving no stone unturned, that, 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 that's for sure. Well, yeah, I got to know Eddie really well in the 90s and, and he always wanted to know 
something new, something different, something he could implement from another code or another sport or another specialist. He was always searching for the for something that was going to really help his uh, team, wasn't he? Yeah. That, that, that's something I, I really admire about people like Eddie is he never he never acted or said that he knew everything. There was always something for him to learn. Yep. Um, and he was always he was always open to talking to anybody if he could learn one little bit of information he was open to that conversation and he'd search out information so I know some coaches that just sit back and think they're not going to learn things from other codes or other coaches but he's the opposite he would visit as many teams in as many different codes as possible and if he spent a week and only learned one thing then that, that was worth it to him yeah, he's a bit of an inspiration, isn't he? Because, I mean, obviously a lot of older coaches are IT illiterate and they think they know it all and that's a problem because then you get older and you get you get um, have that tag thrust on you, whereas he's always developing and always uh, evolving with the times and always searching for something which is uh, he's basically not old, really. Yeah. So you went from the sun to Ireland. You went to freeze, freeze your butt off in Ireland. Yeah. What was the job there? Yeah, I went... Uh... So four years at Geelong to a couple of years at Brisbane and then uh, I headed across to Ireland to work with a, a rugby team called Insta Rugby, which... Uh, Pretty famous. <laughs> Michael Checker. Yeah, so Michael Checker was the head coach of that team at the time and they were looking for an Australian strength and conditioning coach. So lucky there with my relationship with Eddie and Michael and Eddie's relationship, a bit like Eddie and you in terms of the recommendation. So found myself working there at Leinster with, with checks and mate, that, that turned into probably in terms of career highlights. That was uh, the years I spent there were, were just amazing. Lots of success, lots of fun. I uh, learnt a lot. Took my career to, a, to another level, um, starting to, to manage a program more and manage staff and, and athletes more rather than just being a hands-on strength and conditioning coach. So that, that's probably where I really start to develop more managerial uh, skills. And, uh, yeah, we, we went on to win the Heineken Cup, mm -hmm. the first Heineken Cup there in 2009 and um, had some really good domestic success as well and was there for four years. And then when Czechs uh, left to go to Stade Francais, uh, after that, he, he lucky enough that he asked me to go with him and ended up spending a couple of years with him in Paris, uh, working for Stade Francais as well, which was an experience in, its, in itself. <laughs> yeah, I remember you telling me years ago about the French players that um, at that time that they weren't dedicated or... That... A very different culture to what I was, uh, to what I was used to. I, I probably didn't have... Uh, my culture awareness as well as I should have around um, Latino athletes and um, particularly French athletes. Un unfair to say Latino athletes because we had Italian and South American players that were just dedicated to the bone and that, that, that worked their asses off. But, but yeah, the, the French were a little bit different, mate. It's hard to describe. Just the attitude for some reason is slightly, slightly skewed more towards doing as little as possible and hoping to succeed rather than doing as much as possible to ensure success. I mm. think uh, they're, they're, they're just a little bit skewed in their, uh, their way of operation for, for professional sport. But you know what? I actually took a lot of lessons from the, them as well because I think I took it far too seriously when I arrived there and I think 
they help me understand a little bit that it's okay to have fun and enjoy life a little bit, that it doesn't all revolve around sport and pressure and winning and losing. And um, So positives and negatives are both. Would have thought you learned that off me, mate, with some of the shenanigans I went on with. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, think the problem, I think the problem was I went from having fun with you to uh, being under the pump by Eddie for, <laughs> for a couple of years. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. what, what was, um, so you were managing the team then, you were the, you were the high performance manager in, in, in the start in Paris. Well, I, I did that at, uh, at Leinster Rugby as well. Oh, okay. Um, Sorry. But it, I, we, we didn't really call it. I don't know. I, I think the the term high performance manager is a bit of a bullshit term, to be to be honest. But yeah, um, I agree. I agree. We're, yeah. we're, we're still we're still just conditioning coaches, aren't we? We just have more stuff that that we manage. Well, it's not um, a it's not a bullshit term. As if you're getting more money, it's a good term. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so so with rugby. You know, like obviously a lot of AFL people will be listening to this. How strong were they? How fit were they? How fast were some of the better players that you trained in that, you know, Reds, Leinster, Paris phase? Give give us an insight into what you were dealing with in terms of strength, power, speed, and fitness. To be honest, yeah. Obviously, position specific too. Obviously, yeah. Yeah, it is a bit hard, isn't it? Comparing yeah. when you start comparing athletes, like even. Uh, people always uh, say things to me like, who's the strongest guy you've ever trained? And it, it, it is hard because even at Geelong at the moment, we've got one of our Ruckman inches 170 kilos, which yeah. is pretty amazing uh, for a Ruckman, you know, six foot seven, Reece Stanley. Yeah, his yeah. Name. Um, and, you know, that's, that's an amazing bench press. But, Joe, you know what? He could probably bench 150 without training anyway. He's just... A, a beautiful power athlete um, pick up a 200 kilo deadlift and squat 200 kilos without even yeah. thinking about it. So I, I, I think the hard thing when you start dealing with these guys is their caliber of genetics is just so good that if they get a good strength and conditioning program from when they're young, they can actually become anything because the, their ability to recover and adapt to stimulus is, is phenomenal. But um, I, I think more what I found when you start dealing with d- different genetic pools. So uh, when you're obviously working the AFL, uh, you you don't get those uh, big different genetic pools okay. like you did when yep. we're in Europe. So yep. Yep. Um, so you, you get to uh, you get to Dublin and all of a sudden you've got a few South Africans. So we had Ollie Larue, who I'm sure you've heard of, yep. and uh, another guy called. Uh, Vanderlind, uh, um, who was, they were both props, um, CJ Vanderlinder, and mate, these guys were, you know, CJ Vanderlinder could deadlift 300, bench 200, um, squat 250 without training. So you're talking about guys that could probably enter powerlifting comps and go, okay. Mm. But, it, but then at the same time, they're packing scrums and, and uh, running amazing shuttle time. And, and, you know, the same thing, you go into that sort of South African and Italian gene pool and, and you get these guys that are just beautiful athletes and, you know, 110 kilos that can run all day. Um, so I think that's what I found the most interesting was um, the different genetics that, that you see from South Africans that 
Americans, like we had so many different cultures and countries represented at our club. That's what I found working with, with those individuals was amazing. So then that's when the individualization of all the programs became, huh. um, to me, really eye-opening. Yeah. You know, how, 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 how can you get out of each of these athletes the, the most that you can? And then if a guy can bench 200 kilos, they need to bench 205 kilos to be a better rugby player as you just need to become a better runner mm. or you need to be able to shuttle better or get up and down off the ground better. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, does, does that make sense? Yeah, no, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, and, and, and obviously, a lot of players that play AFL would be playing union. I mean, it's just the way they train. They get a little bit leaner and, and you know, it's just the demands of the game change their physiques a little bit. So it's generally good athletes are good athletes, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, what I will say, what I, what I found, and, and I, I could be totally wrong on this, but I, I, what I find with AFL is it doesn't matter how good an athlete you are or how strong you are. Like, I've seen some of the strongest guys. I've seen guys as strong as rugby players playing AFL, but they can't get a game. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, the one thing with AFL is you just have to be skillful. It's a three sixty degree sport that you have to be able to jump, sprint, yep. accelerate, change direction, get up and down off the ground, tackle, be tackled from every angle and do it for 15 to 18 kilometres mm. in a game and be resilient enough to keep training day after day where in rugby you can take a guy that's maybe not that skillful. Um, well, that's the other thing with AFL too. You have to be able to kick left and right 50 metres and hit a target. But in rugby, if you can catch a ball and you're 130 kilos and you can accelerate pretty quickly, and you're probably going to be okay. So you can actually turn guys into animals that are good athletes and maybe not that skillful, but they can play for their country because they do their job. Mm. Um, you know, a prop, a prop can just pack a great good scrum, catch a couple of balls and run five metres into a, a contest with it and they'll be okay. Um, they can actually play for their country if they're good enough at those skills. A bit like NFL almost. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, physical, the physical side is critical. The, the physical... The physical uh, uh, metrics actually really mean something. Where sometimes, as you say in AFL, it's, it's it's it is the ability to play. It's interesting actually. Before I go on to something else, we're talking about big guys. You've got Hawkins at full forward, and then you know we've seen the demise yeah. of Dunstall, Savrocker, Lockett, and we've seen the AFL try to change the rules a little bit to try and possibly allow a little bit more stay at home. I would think that was probably one of their ideas. Will there be a place again at some point for a, for a Sav Rocker or a Lockett, who's, who's a... They were talented, obviously. You know, they're, they're, they're talented. I mean, obviously, very talented athlete, talented footballers, but they were power machines in the purest sense. They, they, they don't, you can't train them like that anymore, can you, in AFL, to become just a pure full forward? No. No, it's... Uh, I had this discussion with, uh, with Scarlo. Um, Matty Scarlett a lot around um, the, the style of play now because when you think about Scarlett, what he used to have to do wrestling against some of those big guys like um, Lloyd and Garrick um, and, and we quite often talk about the, the, the players now, what they have to do. A lot of people probably don't realise that how much Tom Hawkins outputs in a game for a guy that's Weighs between at the moment he's sitting at around 102 kilos, but 
it generally sits around 105 to 107 um, during the season. We've made a conscious effort to bring him down this year, but his uh, his high speed output in a game um, and distance in a game is is really high, and I think it would open a, a lot of people's eyes up to how much work he actually does output, but you have to be able to do that now because if you don't, you're probably not going to get the footy <laughs> the, the way that... Uh, mm defences work now because it's such a defensive structured game now that you don't just have those one-on-one um, contests as much anymore. What we've talked about, Scarlo was talking about the only way they could probably get that to happen again is to have a 15 metre square in the goal square, a 20 metre square and you have to stay in that square, have a full forward and a full back and then all that yeah, yeah. metre arc. They're not allowed outside. They're not allowed outside that. You're only allowed to have, say, three players inside that. Or um, they've tried to, to to change the rules a little bit to allow a bit more of that one-on-one yeah, yeah. Um, work. But yeah, I think we'll see uh, the days of just the big monsters just wrestling and throwing guys out of there. And the hard thing with the rules now is that the strong guys, the really guys, strong guys in wrestles, actually it, it goes against them. Like Reece Stanley, that I was just talking about our ruckman. Because he's so strong, uh, <laughs> he'll push a guy out of the way in a, in a ruck contest, and yeah. well, that's a free kick. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you kind of you, you kind of have all this upper body strength, and there's actually no point because you can't use it. So you need to actually learn how to use your body and your hips um, rather than pushing a guy, or if that makes sense. Yeah, it was just interesting, you know, that that sort of monster that plays in rugby union, and obviously the the Savrock at Dunstall. Uh, era yeah. was was pretty exciting and and great to work with in some way from a strength and conditioning perspective because it's yeah. pure power. Uh, it's sort of sad in a way that's left. It'd be be nice if somebody took the risk and did it and 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 changed the tide. Yeah. But that's probably just a a whim of mine. Um, so well, I, now I, it's all about uh, how much power can you output repetitively for yeah. as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> uh, right. Exactly that, right. That, 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 that's what it's about now. You, you finished at France now. Uh, I heard on the grapevine somebody told me somebody told me that you were headhunted by Essendon at one stage just before um, the weapon and Stephen Dank were there. Is that is that true? Or is that just uh, somebody just giving me some gossip? No, I reckon that was your mate that rang me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a scoop! A scoop on my podcast at last. <laughs> I reckon that was one of your one of your old Essendon uh, colleagues. Yeah. I don't know if I'd say. Well, I, I think it was more because um, Bomber had just arrived at uh, at Essendon. Well, I, I assume that it was Bomber that put my name forward and was keen to to talk to me. Um, so yeah, that that went pretty deep into negotiations, but. To be honest, I'd arrived at Paris the year before. Uh, I'd only done one year in Paris, and uh, I'm a pr- like I'm, a, I'm an extremely dedicated person, and I'm loyal to a fault probably. But um, I had my two-year contract at at Stade Francais, and I, I wasn't going to uh, step back from that. So the negotiations were more probably on their end. But yeah, I, I wasn't particularly interested in coming home at that stage. I, I was enjoying what I was doing in, in rugby and I still felt like I was learning and uh, had further to to go before I was ready oh, to step back into the AFL. Well, you certainly... So, um, and it 
turned out to be a pretty good decision in ending. Well, maybe not. You might have changed history, mate, if you'd uh, if it had gone the other well, way. Well, <laughs> that's, that's another thing. It, def- it definitely wouldn't have uh, definitely probably wouldn't have turned yeah. it the way it was. Okay, so with that whole lesson and thing, and we don't really know, need to know the ins and outs of the negotiations, Chris, but um, gee, you would have changed uh, history if that had gone through and you'd wanted to leave Paris. That, that would have been an amazing turn of events. Well, it wasn't at all unbelievable what, uh, what Pat took there uh, with, uh, with, with that, uh, that scandal. But uh, yeah, mate, it's, uh, I guess you can't really change history, so... Um, I'm sure it would have been a lot different. Well, uh, look, I think... And now we live in the time that we're in. Well, look, I, I don't think... Now that we've spoken about it, it's actually well documented in the media that Stu Cormack was there with D Jennings and they, they were essentially pushed out, which was amazing because they were a great yeah. operator. And, and then obviously they were on the lookout for people like you and when a few negotiations fell down, they, they went with... Um, the, the weapon and Steve Dank came as a, as a byproduct. So it's, it's pretty historical, pretty amazing set of circumstances. And I, I don't think I'm incorrect to say that history could have easily been averted. Okay, so, so you've, come, you've come back to the Cats. When was that, Chris? Came back to Geelong uh, midway through, pretty much just before the finals in 2012. Had a different squad there. You had a lot of the old players left from the golden era, and some young players. Uh, what was the, what was what? How did you view all that? Yeah. That must have been interesting for you. 2012 was Matty Scarlett was just retiring, so he retired at the end of the, that, that year. But we still had, geez, there's still a lot of players from when, um, from when you and I were there. Uh, Jimmy Bartel, uh, Tom Lonigan, Andrew Mackey, uh, Corey Enright. Um, there were still a lot of guys there that, that we trained. Stevie Johnson, uh, o, uh, James Kelly, Matthew Stokes, those boys were all still there. So I was quite lucky because I walked into a situation where um, all the senior uh, leadership group and a lot of the senior players I'd actually worked with for the first four years of their career um, and now I was coming back in for the, the, the twilight of their career. So instantly had that trust from them which I think uh, bled right through the team once uh, once those guys uh, uh, trust you then everybody trusts you so I think I was lucky in that respect that I, I didn't have to, to work too hard to, uh, to to drive my message home because everyone sort of knew what I was about already uh, when I walked in the door so um, that was good but mate, that, that, it, it was great coming back up had reservations a little bit about what it would be like, but um, yeah, you know those guys—they're all a good bunch of guys and, and great to work with, and uh, they're successful, so they they understand what success is, and we're willing to do what it takes to to get that success again. So um, stepping back into the club was was a great experience, and eight, eight years later, and I'm still there, so things are things are going really well. Yeah, so give us an insight into, say, Corey Enright, Jimmy Bartel, Matthew Scarlett, you know, when you left and, and when you came back. That was uh, just give us an insight into their fitness and yeah. you know, playing ability, uh, their, their resilience, uh, you know, what you noticed was difference. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you leave them when they're, they seem like uh, young boys, but you come back and they're, they're grown men. Um, now, I say that and I was, I was the same age as them, so. Um, that they would have thought the same thing.
me. But uh, uh, to be honest, mate, um, the one thing that I really found with those guys, so Jimmy, uh, Corey Enright, uh, James Kelly, Stevie Johnson, uh, Tom Lundigan, Andrew Mackey, uh, exactly what you touched on then, um, resilience. They are they're always the guys that got through the biggest weeks on the track in pre-season. They're always the last ones still out training. They're always the ones doing more extras. Um, they're always the most dedicated in the gym. And that, that all started from um, from you, from, from when uh, you started them at, as, a, as a young child. And they, they still talk about that around the club um, in terms of, of what you bred into them from a training point of view and what you need to do to become a great player in terms of your physical preparation. Because um, they're all assistant coaches at our club now. So, you know, we've got uh, Corey Enright, our forwards coach, um, Matty Scarlett's our backs coach, uh, James Raleigh's our development coach, um, Andrew Mackey's doing development coaching as well, uh, plus some recruitment work. So all these guys that, that you developed as, as, a, as athletes when you're a strength and conditioning coach, they still drive that philosophy that, that you bring into them, to our young players, which the philosophy hasn't changed from the day I walked into that club that you started to, to now. Um, that philosophy of hard training still exists. So it's a credit to you with what you're able to do and the foundations that you laid when you're at the club. Um, and the resiliency that they showed was because of all that training that they did in the first four years um, with you. Thanks, Chris. That's uh, <laughs> appreciate that uh, that rap. But uh, so we, we well, talk. To be honest, mate, you, you, you should take a little. You should take some credit here and there because you got Corey Enright, the, the greatest games player um, for Geelong ever. You've got Gary Ablett still going. Um, you know, Jimmy Bartel, I think went down top three or four of games played um, for the club. So these guys were resilient. And are resilient still, like Gary Ablett, still going for for a reason. And that's because of, of what you implemented from a young age. Um, I think what we see now is uh, S&C guys trying to do too much with these young athletes. Exactly. Uh, Thanks for saying that. And I think that you know what, what I was going to say, and well, I, I had been through this experience at the Bombers, you know, with kids. So I had I'd already had the experience when I got to the Cats and. And it was pretty obvious to me. I worked out a bit of a formula. It was a bit of a rough formula at the time. It was that the young players could, was going to aim at uh, about 80% of the skills, you know, 50% of the running, 60% of the running, 30% of the weights, you know, in their first year, a very general dose, and then just uh, monitor them ongoing with that as a sort of a little bit of a formula. And then... Um, if somebody improved and we could fast forward them a little bit, we would. But the, 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 the aim with that group, which realistically started in 98, which is pretty amazing, um, you know, Wojcicki and all those guys, um, was to get the least injuries and the most continuity on the track um, over a number of years so that uh, they weren't butchered early on, you know, so that they were ready to go four or five years later. So that, that was basically my mantra. That, that was definite, you know. And, and if somebody like Corey Enright could move a bit quicker uh, in his development, certainly give him a whack on the arse and, uh, and move him a bit quicker. But if they were a bit slower, 
Gary Ablett got a lot of bad press about not being dedicated after I left, but he just was going to take a long time to develop. It was just a you know, work in progress from you know, physical, mental. Uh, yeah, so uh, there, was, there, was a, there was a method to the madness. <laughs> problem with the AFL is it's such a young draft and then you know people say oh we need to send our forward and the kid's 18 and then clubs don't often or sometimes respect the fact that it could take four years and then the kid either gets mentally physically or whatever burnt out early on and and, and in the end they're not going to win them a premiership so I mean look how long Richmond took it took a long time it took a long time for them mm. to to get there it's a tough one and 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 it, the pressure on S&C staff and fitness people is, is quite big because everybody wants results. The public want to see these kids do well and win games, but ain't going to happen until they're 22, 23, 24, 25, apart from a superstar at 18, 19. You know, that group started in 98 when I got there and I left in 2006, so it was a good eight pre-season. Give me, give me a bit of a snapshot these days where speed and power and fitness fit fit in. We've spoken a bit about strength, which was interesting. We'll get onto that in a bit because that's a cool thing to talk about. But, you know, how the, the interplay, you know, you talked about repetitive power, repetitive speed, um, but obviously you need base speed, you need base power also. Just just give me a bit of a snapshot of, of how it all works with the energy systems and how it all, how the whole interplay occurs these days. The bloody hard sports are trained for, isn't it? Like, when you look at what we do as strength and conditioning coaches, if you if you could ask for any greater challenge than training an AFL team from a, a strength and conditioning perspective, then I'd love to hear about it because the, the, the things that you have to get these guys ready for is is, is quite phenomenal, to be honest. Um, and that's where made it. That's just such meticulous planning and. I'll go off on a, on a slight tangent here from the question, but um, just for, for guys that are upcoming strength and conditioning coaches, I, I always hear guys that come in and, and want to do uh, field work uh, with us that I want to be a strength coach or you know I want to be a, a, a performance manager, but what they don't realise is how everything moulds together within a strength and conditioning department that to become a great strength coach or a great conditioning coach or a great performance manager, you need to have experience in everything. You need to have been a GPS person. You need to have been a sports scientist. You, you need to have been a rehab coach. You need to have sat under a conditioning coach and learned everything about conditioning, every type of of conditioning system that there is, know your energy systems and how they all work. Um, you, 
you need to, to sit under a strength coach as well and learn about um, periodization and how the strength power works with the actual program because the question that you ask really is to, to, to try and say how it all works on a podcast is extremely difficult. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, essentially, we have Scott Murphy, who's in charge of our conditioning. I'm in charge of our speed, acceleration, footwork, power, strength, etc. For us to get the best out of our athletes, it is constant molding and changing every day. So something you said to me early on uh, around uh, it's just an ever-changing environment daily. So you can have the best plans and the greatest periodization plan um, that the AFL has ever seen, but they keep stuffing up a drilling football and do it for an extra 20 minutes uh, because the coach wants to get that right. And all of a sudden they've done an extra 4K of football uh, with an extra 1,000 metres of high speed. Well, as a strength coach, if I continue then to bring them in and do exactly the same strength program that was going to be really high and uh, eccentric work on the hamstrings or whatever it may be, heavy deadlifts, etc. Well, I'm then could be causing injury to our players. So I then have to reassess that strength program to fit that around conditioning. So I think to, to try and answer your question as much as I can, um, it's about communication, collaboration, um, and really working on each individual player's needs to determine what that person needs. Because if you've got a slow twitch fiber guy that can run all day, um, you know, he's a super elite 2K runner. He can run games, run 18Ks in a game, but he's slow. We're well, probably never going to make that guy fast. So, um, do you, do you spend two, three years on trying to force him to, to become a great accelerator and a, and a, a big strength athlete? Well, probably not because I don't think you're going to change that. Mm. Um, you, might t- you might tilt the curve a little bit, but something that we believe in at the football club is um, keep hammering your strengths and then work on your weaknesses. Mm. So we make our strengths strengths, um, you know, our danger field, Hawkins, uh, you know, at Guthrie's, Buse, these guys are really powerful athletes. Um, we just make them more powerful, and then we try and improve their ability to repeat that power. Uh, but we understand that they're never going to be aerobic beasts. So then, what that means is in-game management. All right, well, what's our strategy to to manage them in-game? So we'll get them to as big a level as possible aerobically. But we don't want to take away from what they delivered to us in a game too much. So it's getting that balance right, Loris, of uh, who are your power players, who are your who are your hard accelerators and the guys that are just going to dominate for three to four minutes. But then you also have to have a balance of those guys that are the aerobic animals that can then stay out on the field for longer periods of time mm. doing that high-end high end running defensive transition, et cetera, et cetera. So your Mark Blitzars, your Sam Menegolas, these guys that are really big aerobic beasts. It's a real fine balance AFL now of getting your team structure right. Um, you, know, you don't just want a team that can be aerobic because a power team will tear you apart. Um, it's having that fine mix, which I think Richmond do it really well. They've got that fine mix of 
Dusty and Cochin and um, so they've got a power athlete with an endurance guy. That they've got guys that cover different um, weaknesses, I guess, of other players. So really getting that balance right in your team, which starts with recruitment um, and then moulding it as much as you can from a strength and conditioning point of view is, is where it all lies. So it's not quite a simple process. It's pretty in-depth with, with how you plan each individual and, and what they do. So... From a strength perspective, we have some guys that only do two weight sessions a week, some do three, some do four. I don't do much more than that because I don't think we need it. Um, you know, and the same with acceleration sessions. We have some guys that do three acceleration sessions a week, some that do two, some that do one, some that do none. Um, we have a bunch of guys that do three footwork sessions a week, a bunch of guys that don't do any footwork. Um, so it's identifying from each individual, what they need to improve, what they need to maintain, um, and, and then how do you fit that into the program for each individual? Yeah, that, that maximising your strength and minimising your weakness is critical, isn't it? Because otherwise you're going to ruin a yeah. talent if you if you try and spend too much time on the weakness. It's a, it's a, it's a valid point, and sometimes... When clubs have got injuries, you know, you have to just get all your, you know, you've only got a certain amount of players and it's not the same team. It might be all the aerobic guys that aren't injured or all the, you know, speed guys that aren't injured and, and, and it's not the same team. The, the, the rotations is what, what is the hardest thing to get around. So, um, you know, how many, how many times do you rotate Patrick Dangerfield, who's probably the most explosive player in the AFL? Um, you know, he's, he's not going to go and win a marathon, but geez, the guy uh, the guy's probably the most explosive guy in the midfield that, that you'll find. So you have to, uh, if he's going to take, uh, let's say, two rotations for a quarter, not everyone can have two rotations for a quarter because you'll run out by, you know, half time if everyone does that. So yeah, yeah. It's, working, uh, work, it's working out how do you cover rotations for those really high-end power players to make sure that they get that sort of four or five minute burst and then come off for a couple of minutes and then go again. But then it's that, that's where you have to work strategy around. All right, well, we're going to play danger in the midfield. Then he's going to shift to full forward for a couple of minutes, come back to the midfield for another four minutes, and he's going to come off. And that gets his first rotation. Um, so a lot, of it, a lot of it comes down to strategy and um, in-game uh, maintenance as well. Um, but... Mm. It is a running game, isn't it? So they've all got to be able to run. Well, exactly so right. That, that, that's always that, that's always the priority. It's just making sure that uh, yeah, you don't you don't negate or, or turn their uh, strengths uh, or take away from their strengths that, that they already have. It's a bit like the Josh Hunt scenario back in the day, um, you know, where coaches just wanted him to run and run and run, but shit, the, the guy was like a an Olympic weightlifter, mm-hmm. um, just a, a big power animal. Um, you know, and you're, you're you're always along that same philosophy is well, why don't we just turn his strength into an even greater weapon and just gradually build his aerobic base? Um, yeah, well, well, that's right. And it was interesting in that period. I mean, obviously not your period, for you, but uh, Max, uh, yeah, Max Rook. His genetics was he was playing in the back pocket and he got tailed up by a Melbourne player, really explosive player, and his his sister was a triathlete. He 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 could do a good two or three K without even training for it. And once we convinced the coaches to put him in the midfield, you know, he really prospered. Um, 
Cameron Mooney was obviously more a power athlete. You know, Scarlo was a power athlete. So Josh Hunt. Yeah, it's 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 interesting you say with the rotations. They're almost a reflection of their genetics, aren't they? <laughs> it's almost a genetic uh, yeah, test. Exactly. <laughs> it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So so. You, when, you, when you're looking at young kids coming into the AFL, and 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 certainly the the, the gym is, is is probably let's 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 assume the kids can run, right? Um, the gym becomes a big factor, isn't it? The strength work because that just hits them between the eyes. Is that still the case? I used to find that you know you just had to be really yeah. careful in the it, gym at first. I find it quite amazing that um one one thing that I've been discussing a lot is um the the best strength and conditioning coaches tend to, to work with the professional teams. So you get the, you get all these kids that come through the TAC um, cup system and the school system, but um, they probably just haven't done the, the, the development in strength and conditioning that has prepared them for AFL to the point where we'll still get guys coming into our into out of the draft into our club that haven't touched weights. We've had two guys this year who came in and have never done weights in their life. Um, so that, from a resilience perspective and an ability to take contact and hard excel, decel, et cetera, et cetera, um, does increase their injury risk. But then by exposing them to a lot of weights, a lot of weights, which is what some people do. They say, well, you've got to do weights five times a week because you're skinny and you need to put weight on. Well, the biggest load that these kids have coming out of school, they've, they've all been playing football yeah, every yeah. day of the week. Uh, they train every day of the week. They're, they're probably pretty much playing footy six, seven days a week, running fast all the time, but not lifting weights. Well, the biggest change in their load that we can give them when they come into a club is actually strength um, because that's where we're causing some pretty high-end uh, muscle breakdown and tissue breakdown. And if they're not recovering from that, um, well, they're at a really high injury risk the next time they go out to train. So um, we, we have a few rules around that, um, and, and that's pretty much what I learned so a few when, uh, when I first started is you know, they don't need to lift huge weights or get sh- as strong as possible. They just need to learn how to move well, become mobile, underweight, um, be strong, single limb, both legs, both arms, um, and, and just dampen their injury risk while teaching their tissues how to adapt to the load. Um, and and we've, we've had a few, even I made a few mistakes when I came back from rugby forgetting some of those rules where... Um, I went a bit gung-ho at some young guys because you get a bit excited and the coaches say, oh, mate, this guy will be a great player. He just needs to put on five kilos, um, you know, and he'll, he'll dominate. Well, we did that with a few players and, and I loved doing it, but all of a sudden you've got stress fracture in your foot, you've got an Achilles tendon, like a guy with Achilles tendonitis, put on a bit too much weight and all of a sudden they're, they're, they put on a little bit too much weight, so... They're out. All of a sudden, their running loads are, are quite high. Um, 30k weeks with net six kilos on them, and they've a stress fracture in their foot. Mm. So you've just got to be—we've got to be really careful. So the same rules still apply. Like for us, we we don't let guys put any more than um, we, we try and stay under 10 percent of body weight gain um, in the first year, uh, and 
that's gradual. So uh, very minimal body weight gains because all of a sudden they are lifting weights and they're learning how to eat properly. So they do become quite anabolic quickly. So we've got to keep a real watch on um, where guys' body weights are at because of that high running load and football load um, just to ensure you minimise the risk of injury yeah. and the risk of their development as well. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's a bit of a sort of a, a hobby horse of mine or something I've complained a lot about that the TAC system, I've got no problems with the people that work in it because they're underpaid and many of them, it's just too many kids, people don't get paid enough and such an important draft and yet the kids aren't exposed to proper training. You know, they get some good footy in and, and it doesn't make sense to me, to be honest, if it's so critical that all these players are so important in the draft. But... It, it, you know, obviously good clubs like yours take their time and, and develop the kids. And I suppose that leads me to, we, we, we better finish off here pretty soon, but, um, but the, the, there are a lot of differences between clubs in strength and conditioning, aren't there? The approach is quite varied throughout the league. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it, it is still quite amazing. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of friends working at other clubs and even guys that worked with us. Um, you know, Lukey Mean at, at Richmond, who I chat to a lot. Uh, another guy, uh, the, the high performance manager at, um, at Adelaide, an assistant of mine from the Queensland Reds, Matty Hass. Um, and it, it is quite amazing to me to be talking to these guys and see how different the strength and conditioning programs um, look across the board, you know, particularly probably from a strength perspective. I, I think the running... Um, the running is a little bit different, but um, I don't think anyone's doing anything too dissimilar or crazy. Um, but from a strength perspective, talking to other clubs, there is a big disparity across the, the teams of how that looks to them and, and what they're doing with players um, from a team perspective and individual perspective. I, I find it quite interesting. Um, it's definitely not homogenous, that's for sure. Yeah, I always had a theory that uh, you know, everybody did a different pre-season, but by about round 17, it was just how organised you were within your football club you know, to, to get them over the line. It was, uh, you know, the, 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 the bodies would tend to mould into footballers to some extent by the end of the year. But yeah, I've noticed that. It's, it seems different to hear about some clubs doing quite light work in the gym and, and, and not really pushing things and, and some other clubs uh, really working hard on, on strength. Yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's probably just that, isn't it? It's just different. <laughs> well, it's funny, mate, because I think it all just, you know, we've said this many times in our chats, is it just goes to show because of all the things that, that I've seen in AFL and across the world in 20 years of, of working professional sport is, you know, I remember when I worked at, um, at, at even Leinster and Stade Francais and Toulouse were the biggest rugby team at that stage when I first started over there and made their weights were voluntary. So <laughs> I walked into this world of rugby in Europe where I was doing young and dumb doing GVT with guys um, because they weren't big enough and they needed to put on size and I walked in doing GVT uh, with a group of guys and then I hear that the best team in Europe doesn't even lift weights. And, you know, you, you even hear it now, some clubs that have won grand finals in the last few years that don't have much of a strength culture or um, don't put much of a, 
of a, an effort into to their strength and made the one grand final. So it all just comes down to your squad and your skill and how you bring that team together. And, um, yeah, if you can stay resilient, which I, I, I think also shows a good strength program as well. But, um, yeah, geez, there's some, uh, sometimes you just think all you need is a bloody talented team don't get many injuries and do as much footy together as possible and you'll you'll be okay. Yeah, hang in there for about six, seven, eight years and then uh, just just hit, yeah. hit the ground running. So so when you're talking about resilience and we're talking about, you know, the changes in departments now with COVID, there's been a bit of discussion about the fact that clubs have got a little bit too big, that departments sometimes, you know, were silos, you know, the medical department may not be talking to the strength and conditioning part, things have just grown too quickly and... There's going to be a rationalisation now. Yeah, what's the impact of how a, a football department works, how it communicates its potential, the silos to develop and, and communication levels to break down? Um, to other clubs, mate, because I don't really know what, what goes on in their clubs, but um, I think we're, we're really lucky uh, at Geelong because we are, we've always been such a collaborative club. And I think... Um, I think Neil Baum and, and Steve Hocking really drove that, that collaboration um, philosophy quite hard, and, and it still continues on today. So, you know, my best mates at the at the club are, are all physios and doctors. So, um, you know, I, I spend uh, a lot of time with our physios and doctors, and it's probably something that I, that I've done uh, my whole career is ensure that I'm. I have a really good relationship with the, the medical team to the point at every club I've been at, the, the physios have always been really close friends of mine um, because I just think that is such a an important relationship for the club to have the strength and conditioning and, and medical staff to be to be tight and to have each other's backs. Um, so I would say from our and we, we don't really have silos because we're such a collaborative unit we all sit next to each other we're, we're all in close proximity of each other um you know we have the physios whenever i'm doing strapping sessions the physios are in the in the gym i, I know a lot of clubs that don't allow their physios into the gyms um but you know I, i'm i'm open with everything i do and and i love having uh, the input of, of everybody so um probably can't talk to that too much in terms yeah, of yeah yeah because we are a really collaborative club and um, just the way naturally we, we function, you know, like I'll, every day I'll speak to every assistant coach, the head coach, uh, all the doctors, medical staff, um, because of the way our offices are set up. So we're a big open plan office. So um, I, I communicate with everyone on a daily uh, in, in conversation. So... Um, we're quite collaborative, but I can imagine other teams may have that silo effect slightly. Um, but I also think that's ego a lot, Loris, as well. Like, I think um, when people become or think they become bigger than the rest of the team, that, that's when those silos can start to happen. Okay, yeah, yeah. When, uh, when a strength and conditioning coach thinks that he knows everything and that um, his area is the most important and that's all that matters... Um, and then that isolates the physios. Or I, I do think that high performance role can create that a little bit as well. If all the information just goes through 
one person from the fitness medical team. Um, so, for example, we have a head physio and a, and a head of performance. They both report to the head coach rather than just the performance manager reporting from a medical perspective because things get skewed then and, you know, let's be honest, like, it's always hard to admit if you cause an injury, but it's easy to say, ah, oh, shit, the, the physio stuff that went up. Um, so I, I do like when more people are responsible for reporting rather than just a funnel that goes, all the information goes in and it comes out from one person because that person's always going to try and save their ass. Um, so uh, it's just the nature of the beast, but I, I do like how we do it at the club in terms of lots of information from lots of people. Um, it can become quite tedious at times uh, because it can become too collaborative, but um, sometimes you just need someone to make a decision. Uh, but it, it works really well at our football club, mate. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's just, I suppose, I suppose it's watch the space with the changes in the AFL with the budgets and departments and how they're going to be set up in different clubs, how they react. It's, it's, it's going to be an interesting period. So, so we better finish up, but we're... Yeah, I, we're I, just, sorry, just, so, just on that quickly, I think what you'll find is uh, that there will be, I think you'll find a lot of staff will probably go part-time specialists. Okay. Um, and so you might have like a, a part-time strength coach um, you know, a full-time performance manager, but he might have like a, a part-time strength coach and a part-time conditioning coach and a full-time rehabber or something um, okay. from our end. But that's, that's just me speculating, but it all just comes down to money, to be honest. You can have as many staff as you want, it's just how much you pay them <laughs> to fit into the budget. So where to next for you, Chris? Uh, good question, mate. I've just I've just bought a house in, in Geelong, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully Geelong for the next few years. So, um, mate, who knows? Uh, I, uh, I'm out of contract at the end of this year, and um, like uh, anyone that works in the AFL, they always know that's uh, that can be an interesting time, especially with everything that's going on. But to be honest, mate, all, all I've done for my whole career is just uh, do my job, do it well, um, you know, Never, uh, never try to uh, step over other people to to get uh, further in my career, and uh, just let my job do uh, do the talking. To be honest, um, well, that's right. And enough to to keep the contract. It, actually, you, you gave me some really good advice, which is good for everybody to hear. That's out there is uh, when I first started the football club. You said to me, "The day you start here, the day you sign your contract, you're a day closer." not being here so always remember that and uh if you keep your head out of the papers and stay out of the media then you'll have a long career and they're two things that i always took on board so i always knew that uh you may not be at a club for a long time and that might not be your choice and if it's not your choice it doesn't mean that you're not good at what you do it just means that that the time's not right for you at at that, that spot um and also, I've kept myself out of the media and I've been going for 20 years and it seems to have been a, a good <laughs> bit of advice that I've taken on board. So, um, mate, all I do is just work my ass off, do the best I can for my athletes. Um, and if that's not enough, well, then I'll move on to the next challenge when when that's given to me. But uh, for the time being, it, it, it's seen me through a, a good career at the moment and 
um, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a big one on social media or um, or selling myself. I guess I just like to do my job and watch my athletes get better and improve quietly, and then uh, hopefully we can get some success at Geelong. And, and that's really for me, mate. My biggest goal is um, my biggest goal is to taste that premiership success with Geelong. Obviously, working there from 2002 to 2005, and Starting back again in 2012, missing those uh, those premiership years of 7-9-11. Uh, my, my biggest goal right now in terms of, of work is to uh, to win a, a premiership and, and the ultimate success with Geelong, uh, hopefully this season. Okay, Chris. Well, that's fantastic. Thank, thanks for this podcast. There's so many things we spoke about and so much of the past and also the future got uh, spoken about. And... Uh, yeah, look forward to catching up when I'm back in Australia. Thanks a lot, mate. Mate, it was a real pleasure uh, being on the show, so thank you for inviting me on, and let's make sure we, we do it again sometime soon. All the best, mate, and uh, take care of there in China. Thanks, Lawrence. I'd like to thank Chris for that podcast. That was so informative and a, and a fantastic insight into what's happening currently in the AFL. It also has an insight into the development of a career and... The absolute determination Chris had, he sent me 14 emails I rejected. Well, I didn't reject them, but I, I, I didn't uh, follow them up, to be honest. And, and, and certainly he presented himself, and i never forget the day when he presented himself. He, uh, he, he was well-dressed, and uh, he was very polite, and I just slotted him into one session for a year, and he, he took that with open hands, showed his work ethic, showed his smarts, and his career progressed from that. So he took his opportunity, he grabbed it, uh, he impressed me, he helped me, and and from there, uh, both uh, his career developed and, and certainly our relationship. Chris is highly experienced uh, after 20 years in the industry, and I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about Chris Dennis in the future. Thanks a lot, Chris.